If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Mark 12, 18 through 27. The title of this sermon is Open Bibles and a Big God. Mark 12, 18 through 27. Well, I'm no war historian, uh, but from what I'm told, a common strategy in war is to send wave after wave after wave in an attack. Uh, As an out-of-shape surfer, I've also experienced this. Uh, It's not that big of a deal to take a singular wave on the head, but whenever there's two more or three more behind it, um, you're going to take a beat down. Well... That seems to be the exact strategy of Jesus' enemies in the final week of his life. Delegation after delegation after delegation, asking him questions, trying to destroy him. If you remember, the first delegation was the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. He said, Jesus, what authority do you have to do these things? To which he soundly silenced them by asking a question of his own. Then he told them a parable aimed directly at them. Strike one. The next delegation that we saw last week was that of the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Dodgers and the Giants, as Chris called them. The enemies with a common purpose to destroy Jesus. The Herodians and the Pharisees. They asked, Jesus, are you going to pay Caesar's tax? To which Jesus, again, completely bewildered them. He reminded them that they were stamped with the image of God and belonged to him. Strike two. This trapping Jesus thing wasn't working out too well, is it? But they thought, no, let's let's try again. Maybe this time we'll stump him. Let's send a third group. Who would they send? Let's dive into our text. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Okay. So, from the beginning, it's important for us to understand a little bit about these people in the text called the Sadducees. And how they're different from the Pharisees within Judaism. We know this distinction is important because Mark goes out of the way to tell us who they are and a little bit about their theology. Uh, Within Judaism, there were multiple groups. There was actually a a wide spectrum of groups. Uh, There were different political beliefs and different theological beliefs. Imagine that. Nothing new under the sun. But Mark knew that he needed to explain that to his original audience and to us. So, here are a couple of bullet points on the Sadducees, who came from families of the highest standing, by the way. First, they didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. They trusted solely in their own human free will. No wonder they had an issue with Jesus' authority. Second, They didn't believe in angels and demons. That'll be important in just a second. Now we see this in Acts chapter 23, verse 8. Acts 23, verse 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. They don't believe in sovereignty. They don't believe in angels and demons. They almost sound a little bit like deists, right? They believe in a God, but he's pretty much absent from the world altogether. Third, the Sadducees had a differing view of the canon of Scripture. They held that only the first five books of the Bible, or the Torah, or the Pentateuch, or the Law of Moses, only the first five books of the Bible were authoritative. So, they had a five-book Bible. Pharisees, on the other hand, believed that the whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings were authoritative and the word of God. So Sadducees have a five-book Bible. Pharisees have a 39-book Bible. Fourth and finally, the Sadducees, as we've already seen twice, both in our text and in Acts, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in what's called annihilationism, the belief that when you die, that's it. You're dust, gone, finished, done. That's the Sadducees. That's the third volley who are approaching Jesus to trap him. So, what's their best shot? What do they throw at Jesus? Look again at verses 19 through 23. It says, They ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, see the sarcasm there, in the resurrection, Jesus, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. 
man, isn't that good? You can almost see them high-fiving one another after asking the question. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there was a provision of the law of Moses known as leveret marriage, meant to provide for the family of the deceased. It made sure that the family kept going and stayed intact. If you've read the book of Ruth, that's what happened there. So, these guys, the Sadducees, they take that law and they devise this question for Jesus. This was probably a question that they had been dropping on other Pharisee kids since grade school to disprove the resurrection. It's a gotcha question. It's like the one, uh, if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock so big that even he can't move? Zing! We just disproved the existence of God. They knew that they had stumped and trapped Jesus with this one. Jesus had already predicted his own resurrection three times at this point in Mark. They had him cornered. Guys, check this out. We got him with the seven wives one. No one's ever been able to answer it. We've got him for sure. To them, this question as absurd and unlikely a scenario as it was, seemed to present unsolvable problems if the resurrection were true. So Jesus was stuck. Or was he? Look at his response. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? just going to stop right there. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, you are wrong. <laughs> Later, he'll double down and say, you are quite wrong. How offensive and intolerant and backwards, according to our postmodern culture. Jesus explicitly says that they are wrong. He doesn't say, well, you guys have your opinion, and I've got mine. They're both right. We're just kind of looking at it from different perspectives. We're all just blind guys trying to describe different parts of the elephant. All truths relative, or this is a paradox. No, he didn't say any of that. He says, you are wrong. <laughs> you are quite wrong. Jesus believes in absolute truth. He makes that clear. In light of that, I'll try to be clear as well. Those who deny the resurrection, then and now, are wrong. They are quite wrong. The resurrection is essential to our Christian faith. And to deny it is to oppose Jesus himself. We'll talk more on that later. And look at how he diagnoses their problem here. Moving on in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures, you know neither the scriptures, 
nor the power of God. Let's look at those one at a time. You are wrong first, he says, because you don't know the scriptures. Did you catch that? He he doesn't say you're wrong because you don't know your history or you're not studied enough in philosophy, as great as those things are. He he doesn't say you're not up enough on current events or politics or your social media feed. He says you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. Now, we can look at these guys in the text and assume that their biggest problem was that they were either arrogant or maybe ignorant. But Jesus says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. Church, do you realize that all of our theological errors flow from this fount? This is where bad theology comes from. Not knowing the scriptures. And hear this loud and clear. Knowing the scriptures takes work. It takes sweat. We don't just know the scriptures via osmosis, with our Bibles next to us on our nightstands. Somehow, magically, the truth just seeps into our minds and hearts. That's not how it works. No, knowing the scriptures involves time in the scriptures. Reading, meditating on, praying through, memorizing them. Friends, this isn't something, I want to be clear here, this isn't something that earns God's favor. It's not like God has a tally sheet up in heaven. All right, Joel finally finished the book of Leviticus. Now I love him. No. Knowing the scripture also isn't meant to be a party trick or just for Bible trivia, right? Knowing the scripture is for knowing God. Knowing the scripture is for knowing God. And that's what Jesus is after in his second diagnosis. Look again at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong because you you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? I actually believe that these two are connected intimately. If you don't know the scriptures, you won't know the power of God. When we know the scriptures, we believe in a big God. A God who said, let there be light. And there was light. A God who spoke everything into existence. A God who flooded the earth in judgment. A God who rescued his people from an evil oppressor without breaking a sweat. A God who parted the Red Sea and brought Israel into the promised land. And a God who healed the sick, made the blind see, and defeated death itself. What I want us to see here is the more we read the Bible, the more we see God as a big God. He's powerful. The Sadducees' God, on the other hand, was way too small. 
They believed in an impotent God who was tightly bound by the forces of this world and their smug reason. Cards on the table here. The God of the Sadducees looks a lot like the God of Protestant liberalism. According to them, there's no miracles. And Jesus was just a good man and just a good example. He's a good friend, but he has no real power. Sounds a lot like the Sadducees. God's not sovereign, and he's kind of just an an absentee landlord to them. That's not the God of the Bible. That's a different religion altogether. That's the argument that this guy named J. Gresham Machen, if you haven't heard of him, J. Gresham Machen, he, he made that argument in his most famous book called Christianity and Liberalism, where he argues that those are fundamentally two different religions. The God of the Bible is a big, big God. Misunderstanding the scriptures leads to misunderstanding God. That's what I want us to see. But look at what Paul prays for the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. He prays that us this morning, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his, speaking of God, power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in us. And look at where he roots this power and might. And read that again. That we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believed, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's my prayer for each and every one of us this morning. My hope and desire and prayer for us as a church is for us to be a church with open Bibles, knowing the scriptures, and a big God. So do you know the scriptures? Do you believe that God has power? Open Bibles, big God. Those were foundational things that the Sadducees were lacking. Now, Jesus gets to the specifics of their question. Look at verse 25. He tells them in verse 24, they neither know the scriptures nor know the power of God. Then he answers them directly. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, they don't understand the scriptures, they don't understand God's power, but they also clearly don't understand heaven. First of all, notice that Jesus doesn't give them an inch. He doesn't say, if they rise from the dead here. He says, when, and then proceeds to tell them, and us, something about heaven. Now, This isn't Jesus telling us everything about heaven. But he is answering their absurd question. He says, When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So understand this. 
heaven. The world of the resurrection is different from the world that we live in. That's Jesus' point here. He's saying, you're wrongly assuming a heaven that's basically the same as earth. But it's going to be different. You're going to be like angels in heaven. Notice that he doesn't say you will be angels in heaven. He says, like angels in heaven. So he's not saying we're going to sprout wings or anything like that. What he is saying is we won't be married, like the angels aren't married. So there won't be a need to procreate or to model the relationship between Christ and his church, which is what marriage is for. Why won't there be a need for that? we'll be seeing it clearly forever with Jesus in front of us. There won't be a need for marriage in heaven. So hear me on this. I know that some of you who are happily married are thinking, no marriage in heaven? But I love my wife or I love my husband. Again, this is Part of Jesus' point here. He's saying to the Sadducees and to us, heaven is God-centered. While you will be you and I will be me in heaven, and we'll have perfected bodies in heaven, we won't be centered around us and our relationships, even the closest of relationships in marriage. Instead, will be focused on the Lamb at his marriage supper. Now, I know that this is kind of hard to grapple with because all we know and all we've experienced is life here on earth with God's good earthly gifts. It's easy to be earth-focused. I love this story from R.C. Sproul. He says this, he says, I'm reminded of a statement by my mentor, Dr. John Gerstner, once made to me after a seminary chapel in which a speaker had attacked nearly everything precious to classical reform theology. As we were leaving the chapel, I caught up with Dr. Gerstner, and because I was quite distressed about what I had heard from the speaker, I blurted out, if John Calvin could have heard that address, he would have turned over in his grave. Dr. Gerstner stopped, turned to me, and said, Young man, don't you know that nothing could possibly destroy the pleasure that John Calvin enjoys at this moment? <laughs> Do you see his point? The depth of joy and delight and pleasure and satisfaction and love that we'll experience in heaven is unfathomable. We won't miss a thing from this earth, even great marriages. Listen to Jonathan Edwards on this. He says, In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. He goes on and says, The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion 
as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasures here. Again, the point is that no one will be dissatisfied or frustrated or disappointed when they get to heaven. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, says this. It says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And here we go. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why is heaven full of joy? And why are there pleasures forevermore? Because heaven is centered on God. The Sadducees didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. And they didn't understand heaven. How about us? Do we understand it? The popular question is this. If, if you could have a heaven with everything that you could possibly want, big house, boat, endless supply of food, perfect waves to surf with no one out, books, you name it, it's all there. You could have all of that, but no Jesus. Would you still want to be there? Heaven isn't focused on us and on our earthly relationships. It's focused on God. And if you don't like that, you probably won't like heaven. Side note, this truth, this truth should shape what our church services look like. The gathered church, as the people of God, are meant to be a foretaste of heaven. If that's true, our most significant focuses in our gathering should be on God. That's what that painting right there is all about. If you don't know, these are our three values as a church. Up, in, and out. The most important reason that we exist as a church is to worship God, to glorify Him forever with all of our beings. That should shape what our church services look like. Now, I'm not saying that, that this is heaven, but this should be a foretaste. It's like at Costco, right? You go around and you get a sample. Makes your mouth water for more. That's what they're banking on. Worship services of the gathered church should be centered on the triune God as a sample of heaven. The Sadducees don't understand the scriptures, the power of God, or heaven. Jesus isn't done with them yet. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, 
how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. They don't understand God. And this is brilliant. Remember what we learned about the Sadducees. They don't believe in God's sovereignty. Jesus tells them, you don't know God's power. They don't believe in angels. Jesus answers their question, saying that when when we rise from the dead, we'll be like angels. They don't believe in the resurrection, and they only believe in the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. What does Jesus do? He takes them to the first five books of the Bible to teach them about resurrection. Now, if you were going to teach the resurrection of the dead, where would you go in the Bible? Even in the Old Testament, it can be taught clearly from multiple places. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Psalm 16, 9 through 11, that we read just a little bit ago. Daniel 12, verse 2. Jesus could have gone to any of those places, but he decides to play their game. Okay, you guys only hold the Torah as authoritative. Let's go there. Have you not read? Then he quotes Exodus 3. The story of the burning bush. I love that. That gives me some encouraging, um, some encouragement there. Jesus just says, don't you remember the story of the burning bush? Sometimes it's hard to remember a chapter and verse of where a story is. Jesus is like, don't you guys remember the story of the burning bush? What he's talking about is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Here it is, Exodus 3, 1 through 6. He says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's where Jesus goes to teach the Sadducees about resurrection. Just so we understand, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years, about six or seven hundred years, when Exodus 3 happens. Then, God, from the bush, spoke to Moses and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They've been dead for, a hundred, for hundreds of years. And yet, 
God doesn't say that he was their God a long time ago. He said, I am their God. Jesus' point? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't cease to exist when they died. They lived beyond the grave. (laughs) They physically died. They've been dead for 700-something years. But they're very much spiritually alive. God is not the God of the dead or of people who have ceased to exist. He's the God of the living. They're quite wrong. But let's take it even a step further. Kent Hughes notes that Jesus' words convey something which is even more compelling to the ancient Hebrew mind. And it is this. These three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God, which was so dynamic, so profound, that it demanded a continued living relationship with God after death. God does not make an everlasting covenant or promise with insects which last an hour. What Jesus is saying to them here, it's about covenant. God doesn't make covenants that last just 60 or 70 years. He makes everlasting covenants. Abraham knew this. Look at what Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 10, says. Speaking of Abraham, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Skipping down to verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. God's covenant promises are far, far more significant than this life only. They're everlasting. They entail resurrection and eternal life. That's why God said this to Moses in Exodus 3 comfort him, and to encourage Moses in the truth that he, God, was with him. And he was with them to the end. Moses, I'm not going anywhere. I'm still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do you see that? He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the living. 
God's promise had not failed. Not even death can sever the covenant relationship that God has made with us through Christ. So understand this. If God is faithful to us in life, but abandons us in death, he's not God. But this isn't the case. We can have full assurance that God's promises extend beyond the grave. How? How can we have full assurance? Because of Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. He's speaking to Martha here. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said that. But he did more than just talk, didn't he? He died, was buried, and then rose from the grave three days later. This is our hope. Our living hope, as we sang earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, For as by a man came death, Speaking of Adam, as by a man came death, by a man, speaking of Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Do you see it? Because Christ rose from the grave, those who are in Christ will rise from the grave. What happened to Christ happens to us. For those who have repented and believed, we're spiritually unified with Christ. In Christ, our hope of resurrection was realized. He overcame the grave, not only on our behalf, but we experience it with him. Friends, this is why resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. If if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we won't either. And Paul says that if that's true, we're to be pitied. But he definitively did. He died for our sin and was raised for our justification. Romans 4.25 tells us that. If you're a Christian, take comfort in that truth this morning. Even more, celebrate and find joy in that truth. That Christ overcame the grave on your behalf, and therefore you with him. Your sins have been paid for. And you will be raised to relationship with an eternal covenant-keeping God because you're in Christ. If you're a Christian, take comfort in that. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, 
We invite you to today. The Bible calls you to repent or turn from your sin and to believe or trust in Christ. He's the only hope of this world. He's a a big God who raises us to a great heaven where he's at the center forever. I can't wait for that day. So in closing, do you know the scriptures? Do you know the power of God? Do you know what heaven is like? And do you know what God is like? My charge to us today, as a a part of our four-year celebration, is to be a church with open Bibles and a big God. Let's pray.